Good morning. First, let me say that I'm very humbled to serve Sanctuary in this way. It was four years ago. I, um, I went with Bishop Ed to a French fusion burger bar in New York City, and I said, I, I think we need to go back to Tulsa. Um, we love sanctuary. And we said, if we come for no other reason than to just be a kind of stable presence for this community in a time of some uncertainty and some unknowns, that we would love the chance to come back and serve sanctuary and just, again, be a, a stable, consistent kind of presence here for this house. And so... Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to make this a little more official, and we're really, really excited about that. Uh, this installation is kind of um, the, the marriage vow moment, right? So you can speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> and uh, if you do have any grievances to air, you can talk to Bishop Ed. When I was five years old, I was traveling to Florida with my grandparents and my parents. We were on our way to Disney World. Um, to travel with my parents and my grandparents wasn't an unusual thing. But, and you'll be able to tell that this story is about 30 years old, because we were walking through the airport, and you know they have all of these stores where you can get drinks and snacks. And at this time, there was a basket of rubber snakes. You will not see a basket of rubber snakes in the airport in the year of our Lord, 2021. <laughs> and again, I'm about five years old, and I grab one of these snakes, and something in the back of my mind remembers my grandmother, Yuhu, as we called her, is terrified of snakes, to which I promptly turned around and began to chase my grandmother with this <laughs> rubber snake all over Terminal B, and no one came to her aid. Like, it was a terminal full of people watching this four- or five-year-old kid just absolutely torment his grandmother with this rubber snake. Here in what I'm referring to as Deep Lent, this is the part of Lent where it feels like, are we still in on this thing? Is God really going to show up in any meaningful way for us in this season? Here in Deep Lent, we're given this story of the serpent, these snakes that have come among God's people, biting them, causing some of them to die. But somehow, this image of the serpent is turned into an image of healing. You remember this story that, that people come to Moses and they're grumbling and even in their grumbling, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They say, we have no food, we have no water, followed by, and we detest this food. They just said they had no food, but somehow the food they have is detestable. And this is the moment when snakes creep into the midst of the people of God. And Moses prays to God, and God tells him, create a serpent out of bronze, and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bit by one of these snakes just has to look at this image and be healed. So somehow, here on a pole, in the middle of the wilderness, 
with no food and no water and people being bitten by snakes, death is transfigured. So how does this happen? We know the rest of the story, the part of the story that Jesus alludes to in our gospel text today in John 3, the part where Christ becomes like the serpent that's lifted up in John's words. But right out of the gate, we shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse these images of the snake on a pole and Jesus lifted up on the cross. For one, Jesus is not a poisonous snake, right? The snakes were the problem, not the solution. John is saying that the evil that inflicts us all, the venom of sin and fear and death, was somehow allowed to take out its full force on Jesus. And as we know and we claim to believe that when Jesus dies, he doesn't die. Death itself is put to rest. Jesus is somehow the healing of our poison, that we serve a God that transfigures and transforms sin and death. Somehow, when we look at the horrors of the cross, we see its horror, to be sure, but we also see its beauty. This is the invitation of the gospel text today. N.T. Wright says that the bronze serpent thus became the sign of both the problem and God's solution to the problem. Now, we know that this is the work that God is always doing in our lives, transfiguring death into life, taking those things that were meant to destroy us and somehow working those things to be for our good and the good of our neighbors. The catch for us is that we would rather resist this work that God wants to do for us and in us because this work, it's difficult and it's painful. It means actually turning and facing those fears and exposing those wounds that we would rather leave unacknowledged, those things that are broken in us that we would rather keep hidden and tucked away. For the Hebrew people, their literal healing came by way of turning and facing the very thing that had come to destroy them, to set their image, to set their gaze on this snake that had just bitten them, poisoned them. This is part, I think, of the hard work of Lent. It's the work of exposing those pain points. It's the work of taking those parts of our lives and our souls that we know need to be transformed and not shy away from them, but to face them, to turn toward them, to actually put our finger on them and allow ourselves to feel the pain and the brokenness of our lives. We bear our wounds before God and before one another. As a pastor's kid and someone who has a long, complicated history with fasting, I love to exploit the fasting loopholes. <laughs> so, for example, even as a 31-year-old, I've given up social media for Lent. And part of the reason why I've given up social media is because I'm realizing the ways that it's a, it's a counterfeit kind of connection for us, right? A counterfeit way of creating community, that there's not really any 
depth and certainly not a whole lot of health in those spaces. And so I'm saying, you know, I'm disconnecting from this counterfeit community. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, plus, you know, I'm going to put my phone away a little more during the day. Allow me to focus on the things that really matter. So what do I do? Well, I find myself on the phone maybe more throughout the day, calling my family and friends with nothing else but, hey, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And then on Sundays, of course, this is our feast day, and so we don't participate in our fasts on Sundays. You're more than welcome to continue, but for those of us who would like to observe Lent correctly, you don't have to do it on Sunday. I love finding these loopholes, and I'm sure that you do too in a lot of ways. But it's the point of a season like this, right, that we do this hard interior work. We're searching out the dark corners that we've refused to be touched by the light of Jesus, the things that we would rather remain hidden and tucked away. When I was a kid, all my stories are from when I was a kid because I don't have a whole lot of adult stories. When I was a kid, my dad would tell me that I wasn't allowed to get on those death machines. And he always meant one of two things by death machines, motorcycles and trampolines. (laughs) I've never had any interest in riding a motorcycle. I just never have. But I love a good trampoline. So again, one day I'm about... 10 years old, 11 years old, and I'm at my friend Luke Fetterspiel's house, and we decided that his next-door neighbor, Travis, has a really amazing trampoline. So we sneak over to his house, we're jumping on the trampoline, and sure enough, the death machine kicks in full force. And I fall backwards on the trampoline and hit my head on the bar that holds all those springs. And I sit up, And immediately, blood is coming down from the back of my head. So we run back to Luke's house. His mom got me a frozen bag of peas and did all of that. And when she drops me off at my house, she says, now tell your mom what happened, and she's going to get you taken care of. These were death machines that I was not supposed to be on. (laughs) So I did not tell my mom what had happened. Instead, I went inside, I ate dinner, and I went to bed. And it wasn't until my mom came to check on me later that night and found my pillow soaked with blood, that she realized anything had even happened to me. She was a good mom, truly. (laughs) It sounds like she was very neglectful. She wasn't. So the next day, she takes me in, gets me looked at, and the doctor that checks me out says, you know, if this is going to be okay, you're going to heal up all right, and there's no major brain damage or anything that we know of. And he said, but if you would have come to me sooner could have stitched this up, the healing time would have been shorter, and to be sure, the scar that this is going to leave would have been much less significant. If you just would have come to me sooner, this whole thing could have been put to rest much quicker. We're more afraid of facing down those parts of us that remain hidden than we are the damage and the scarring that they actually might be doing to our souls. Those things in us that are actually damaging to our lives and the lives of those around us. We're afraid because we can't grasp the depth 
of God's grace. We don't understand it. Our hearts and our minds can't grasp the depth of God's grace. We can't understand the reality that God loves us first, that God offers us the gift of grace freely. And we don't like this because free gifts say nothing about being strong. Free gifts say nothing about being superior, about being moral, and so only our souls can understand grace. And we would rather think that we deserve what we have, that we've worked for God's grace, that we've earned God's forgiveness, because our ego doesn't know how to receive a gift that's freely given. This is one of the ways that culture tends to influence our understanding of God more than God actually shaping and influencing the way that we see ourselves and see one another. We live in a capitalist, consumerist economy. And before you get ahead of yourself, I'm not disparaging capitalism. I'm simply pointing out that it is a system built on getting what you earn. It's about getting what you deserve, the basic exchange of goods and services. And if you happen to be somebody who goes without, that's what you get for not contributing enough, for not working hard enough. But grace is the opposite of this. Grace is not a transactional affair. Grace is freely given, that God loves us first before there was anything lovable about us at all. It's something that our hearts and our minds can't make sense of, and so we have to give our whole selves to this reality in order to understand it. Romans 5.8 reminds us, God proved his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love this quote from Father Richard Rohr. He puts it this way. He says, if we're honest, culture forms us much more than the gospel. The old, tired, win-lose scenario seems to be embedded in our cultural hard drive, whereas the experience of grace at the core of reality, which is much more imaginative and installs new win-win programs in our psyche, has been neglected and unrecognized by most of Christianity. People who live their entire lives inside of a system of competing, measuring, earning, counting, and performing can't understand how the win-win scenario of the gospel would even be interesting or attractive. What is Father Rohr saying to us? He's suggesting that not only are we called as Christians to resist our ego, and give ourselves over to the reality that God loves us, even from the foundation of the world, that we are called to let that be the transformative lens with which we see the rest of the world as people who are loved, as people who have been given grace upon grace, as it says in John 1. And so we need a new kind of imagination. We need a resurrected imagination in order for this lens to get any footing in our lives. We see this play out in Ephesians 2, which is our New Testament text for today. Ephesians 2 says, You 
were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I think if we're not careful, we can read a text like this and imply that there are two kinds of humanities. There's the humanity of the believer, those who have received God's grace, and the humanity of non-believers, those whom God has somehow withheld his grace. In that text, we read about the children of wrath, those who are dead and in sin, those who are following the course of the world, dominated by the passions of the flesh. And we juxtapose that over and against, as Paul puts it later in Ephesians 2, one new humanity, which is created in Christ's body as the household of God. So this kind of reading, I think it, it misses the point. It misses the point that God loves first. As our friend Chris Green says, the line of thought in Ephesians 2, it doesn't end with the contrast between the family of God and the children of disobedience. Paul goes on to insist that this one new humanity constituted in and as Christ's body is joined together and grows into a holy temple a dwelling place for God. And get this, and what is this temple if not a holy place set aside for the world to meet with its God and for God to act on the world? This is our calling, that we who have received Christ's grace, the grace of God, those of us who have turned and set our gaze on Jesus and opened our hearts to let the light of Christ touch our lives, we're not separated from the world in a way that we have to think in these terms of us versus them. That's not the point. We receive grace and allow our lives to be touched so that we can go out into the world as temples of God, that we can be the people who are places for God to actually touch the world. An opportunity for people to come and taste and see that God is good and loves us and extends us grace. It means that we who have experienced the grace of forgiveness in Christ Jesus, that those of us who have dared 
to look at the horrors of the cross and actually found the beauty of salvation are graced and forgiven and saved for the sake of the world, for the sake of others. It means that our place as people who are healed and made whole is to be a sanctuary, is to be a temple for God, a holy space in the world for the world to meet with God and for God to touch and heal the world. It means that we resist, again, the false dichotomy of us versus them, the good guys versus the bad guys, the saints versus the sinners. And we embrace the gift of grace that God has offered to all people. We become those who help others that are living in darkness to see the light of grace in their lives, the grace that we believe is already present, already at work, already extended to them. Now, does this mean there's no such thing as good and evil, as right and wrong? Of course not. But it does mean, I think, that not everything you think is good is good. And not everything that you call bad is bad. It means that we wrestle with not flesh and blood. It means that we wrestle not against other human beings, but principalities and powers. It's systems of injustice and oppression. It's ways that the world has organized itself to work for a few and disregard many. It's the ways in which we defend the status quo of competition rather than imagine a resurrected reality where grace is given as freely as it's received. As Bernice King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, once tweeted, there's a difference. I'm a millennial. There's a difference between defeating people and defeating injustice. I want to say that again. There's a difference between defeating people and defeating injustice between working to right a wrong and working to wrong others because you believe you're right. Mind your soul, she says. We are all journeying through. In John's gospel, we hear that most popular verse, for God so loved the world. The Jewish faith affirmed that God loved Israel. But nowhere up to this point had any Jewish writer argued that God loved the world. It's a distinctly Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all of humankind. God's love is not confined to any ethnic group or spiritual elite, but that this love for the world proceeds from the fact that God is love. It is God's nature, God's essence to love. And because it's God's nature, it becomes our calling. As we say at the close of so many of our services, we go in peace to love and serve the Lord. One final thought on this issue of grace, and this is a little complicated, so bear with me. The great American poet, his name is William Stafford, he used water as a metaphor to describe writing. And Eugene Peterson, which is we know him as the great American pastor, he co-ops what Stafford writes here, this analogy that he used about water and writing, and he uses it to describe 
grace. Here are Stafford's words and Peterson's interjections. Try to follow along. Any reasonable person who looks at water, at grace, and passes a hand through it can see that it would not hold a person up. But swimmers, followers of Jesus, know that if they relax on the water, on God's grace, it will prove to be miraculously buoyant. And writers, followers of Jesus, know that a succession of little strokes on the material nearest them will result in creative progress, growing up in Christ. Writers are persons who write, he says. Swimmers, believers, are persons who relax in the water, let their heads go down and reach out with ease and confidence. Just as the swimmer, the believer, does not have a succession of handholds hidden in the water, but instead simply sweeps that yielding medium and finds it hurrying him along. So the swimmer and the rider, followers of Jesus, passes his attention through what is at hand, propelled by a medium, propelled by God's grace, too thin and all-pervasive for the perceptions of non-believers who try to stay on the bank and fathom his accomplishment. We all move along, held, surrendered to, given over to this free gift of grace. If we let ourselves... Others of us choose to stand on the bank and wonder, how does a grace-filled life actually work? How does it hold them up? Where are the handholds, the moments of certainty and surety, when really all we can do is give ourselves over to this work of grace? We can't see it. We can't reasonably expect it to sustain us, but still it carries us along as long as we let it. Grace is the gift of God, and we are the work that God does. We are what God has made us, people who are loved, people who are forgiven, people who are claimed as God's own. Again and again, God loves first.